0: Hey everyone, this is Tom Singer. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to inform you about a special offer that I have to join a brand new group called My Sales Call. If you work for a small business or if you're a solopreneur, having some people to talk about ideas and best practices and to have a focus and accountability around sales is so important. It's so easy to get caught up in the busy work that we don't do what we need to do to drive the sales in our business. So I have started a weekly call where people can get together and share ideas around sales and then make a commitment to the group of what they're going to accomplish for the next week. It's just like if you work for a big company, your sales manager would have a weekly sales call. This is your sales call. Go to mysalescall.com to find out more and sign up today. So I created this podcast about five and a half years ago so I could have access to really interesting people who are doing cool things because I know that one thing is always true, and that is success leaves clues. So when you get to get around people who are doing things that are interesting, cool, successful, etc., they can't help it. They have to leave an idea, a theory, a nugget, or a concept behind and that's why i do this show because it just exposes me to so many different ways of looking at this world of entrepreneurship and on the flip side hopefully some of you also are really enjoying these conversations that we have so today i have with us matt browning Browning, he's brawny not brownie uh matt browning it damn it i'm gonna edit that out let's look at the time you can brawn brun me all you want I don't 50 care. seconds all right fucking whatever <laughs> All right, so, so Chad, I screwed that up and I'm really big about not screwing up names. So Chad, we're gonna go back here at a minute 10. So I'm really happy to have with us today, Matt Broning. Now, Matt, I gotta tell you, he is a guy who does a lot of things. And so I don't even know where we're gonna start. He was like a child entrepreneur. He was like selling skateboard wheels out of his backpack. He uh, has written several books. He teaches people how to be better public speakers. There's so many layers to Matt that it's crazy. So I was excited when he agreed to take a little bit of time out of his busy schedule and join us here on Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Hey, Matt, welcome to the show.
2: Tom, buddy, my friend, you are so good looking over Zoom, almost as good as in person. I'm glad to be here, man. I'm excited to jump into all the cool things that we do and uh, having a conversation about that, man. All right, so you've been kind of
0: entrepreneurial since you were a kid. And some of the people who are on the show, that's that's their origin story. Other people fell into it at 50 years old. So, so let's go backwards. So what led you to
2: be an entrepreneur? How did you get the bug? You know, for me, it, it was... Quite simply, man, I never fit in. I shared the story at a conference we, that we were at just a little while ago. I'm five years old. And I'm standing behind this big oak tree in kindergarten. I'll never forget this day because it was, it was printed onto my mind. I remember looking at all the kids out there in kindergarten and thinking, I don't fit in. I don't think I can connect with these kids. And I'm not thinking this logically. I just knew that I didn't know how to go up and say hi But they all seem to play just fine, you know? I'd see parents bring their kids to the playground, go play, yay, and they all run off. And me, I just kind of stand there and look and be like, okay, um, hmm, what am I supposed to do? And in that moment, man, I knew that I had a fatal flaw, I knew that I wasn't the same as anyone else, and I knew that I didn't quite fit in. I wasn't in all through school. It stayed with me the entire time.
0: What you needed was to have been my age and at my school because I was always really good about going, hey, come and play with us. I always I've always been kind of like this super connector who who wanted to be inclusive of people. Uh, for the, for the
2: most I part, wish I had a super connector in my elementary school.
0: There, there was sort of that junior high thing where maybe I got a little snotty, you know, a little bully, like whatever. But, uh, that was my own self, uh, self doubts and things. But most of the time, like elementary school and high school,
2: I was the guy saying like, Hey Matt, come sit with us. That, you know, Tom, that would have been very kind. So I didn't have a Tom singer in my life. And it was weird because I like, I never did any sports. And people think it's odd, I don't know who does that, but my parents, they weren't like not, they weren't absentee parents. I was in Boy Scouts, I suppose, and I did some things, but I never did any sports. I never did chess club, never did journalism. I wasn't dumb, but I wasn't smart. I wasn't the top of the class, I wasn't the bottom. I just sort of was good enough and I just went by in the shadows. And all my life, nothing really stuck out and I didn't really have a tribe of my own, I suppose. And it wasn't until I was 22 that I started my first real business. You mentioned the skateboard wheels when I was gosh, probably eight or nine. um, It wasn't a real business, but goodness sakes, man, some of the kids in the neighborhood, we got a hold of this big, like five gallon bucket, like a Home Depot bucket full of these old, you know, the, the old vision skateboards with the big, thick, fat wheels and the tail and the nose, the bumpers and all that that you'd skate on your knees with. And we got a hold of these these wheels and some trucks, and I was like, you know what we should do? And they just thought we should have a stockpile. I'm like, no, we should go on the corner. And we should sell these to the other kids in the neighborhood. So some kids had a lemonade stand. I had a skateboard wheel stand. Um, I think I made about two dollars. So it was a big failed experiment. I sold four wheels for a dollar. I had two customers; two of them were my friends. But apparently, no one else stopped their car uh, to pick up the uh, the young entrepreneur's skateboard wheel stand. <laughs> so I abandoned that, and they're probably still sitting in my dad's garage somewhere. But at 22, I started my first real business. It was the first time in my life that people started following me in a way. They they started. It's like they had to invite me in because I was the boss, and and I don't mean like boss employee relationship. It was like I brought the vision out for something I wanted to accomplish. And I found that people began gravitating towards vision, not knowing what I was doing at the time. I was really starting to build kind of my first, I don't know, enterprise slash tribe of people. Nice. Interesting. So so you've been doing this
0: for a long time because you're a lot older than 22. Uh, 23 now. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So so what is it that you've loved about this entrepreneurial journey? And in, in the interim, have you ever had like a real
2: job with a boss and like a time to be at work? Yeah, man, at 17. I worked at Sizzler Steakhouse and I, don't know, I used to
0: love the Sizzler Steakhouse. You'd stand in line and there was pictures of the food. It was like <laughs> <laughs> it, it was so best. it was so exciting. It, like I had gone to Asia when I was, you know, a teenager and all the restaurants had pictures of the food. So you knew what you were getting. But in the United States, it was only the Sizzler. No, Sizzler's
2: the best because like it was full service, but not full service. You go and wait in line. There's a big picture of all the food up in the menu. You pick it, you order it, you grab your tray, you sit down, you get your all you can eat salad bar. But then after that, it's full service. And so and then they bring I, it, they bring it to your table and the
0: steak, it had actual like sear lines in it. it looked like you painted them on. And, and my favorite was it always had like a, a large fat wooden toothpick that said like, Medium, medium, rare, well done, whatever it was sticking right in the steak. So you knew (laughs) that it came
2: like it had like a label that said, I've been cooked to the right level. Well, I, I see that as a label of "judge me by my mistakes." Right now, we're not hiding anything because it said medium rare, and you look at it and it's well done, and that happened a lot. <laughs> but, man, it, it's Sizzler, I worked there about a year, and wait, wait, I was wait, on. Are, track are there still
0: Sizzler steak? My dad and I used to go when I was a teenager. My mom, yes. my mom was dying of cancer. Not to bring this entire interview like down. Mm-hmm. There we go. Yeah, when I was fifteen, she got she got sick. She died when I was eighteen. But she wanted like me to like eat dinners with like meat and vegetables and uh, not Burger King. And so my dad and I would, the two of us would go to Sizzler a lot. And I'd be like, if you can't go, I don't want to go. And she'd make us go. But really what she did is she kind of got my father and I to become super close because over those last three years of high school, he and I went out to dinner like three days a week often to the sizzler and I gotta tell you when I look back on my relationship with my dad and he only died six years ago he lived to be 99 years old oh my gosh a lot of the bonding that I had because I was a total mama's boy as a kid a lot of the bonding that I had I don't know why this is all coming out to me right now just with the word sizzler but was sitting at the sizzler steakhouse and I loved the big thick steakhouse fries and how about the cheese
2: toast Did you get the cheese toast they always brought free cheese toast I could eat my weight in cheese toast so, I'm telling you right now. So, what you're saying is that sizzlers are really responsible for you and your father bonding and connecting. A- absolutely. Are they even still and in business? I need to go yeah, to a sizzler. They are. In a roundabout way, then I'm actually responsible for you and your father bonding, I, I even though I wasn't alive. At I was going to say,
0: I don't even think
2: that you. And <laughs> when I was 15, you may not have been born. Somewhere in that. Range. I, I think we're almost that far apart, <laughs> but you know, what, like I. So I'm, I'm working at Sizzler, and Sizzlers' are existence. There's one actually around the corner from my folks' house in Orange, California. Still, they're they're all over the place. See, I grew up in. But that's I, it. I grew up in Southern California. My my Sizzler was on Sizzlers. Baldwin Avenue in Arcadia, California. Dude, like, look. So I still like Sizzler, um, but somewhere in there, like, I just I don't know. Like, I, I'm 17, and I remember you know meeting the manager, a really really nice man named Craig, and he just. He, he worked 60 hours a week managing a sizzler and I know he didn't make too much money and he had dreams and aspirations and, but he was managing the sizzler and I saw that he wanted more and in a way that kind of inspired me, I'm like, okay, this is the stepping stone for me. I'm going to figure something out. I actually, I don't share this almost on any interview, but, um, I fell into hey, a lot yeah, of drugs and drinking.
0: Totally. Okay. I don't usually share my dead parents stories either. So there you go.
2: Well, I guess we're in good company then, Tom. Um, but like by 15, I started doing drugs and, and drinking and kind of going down this, this teenage path. Same when my brother went down. Um, you know, he got kicked out of three junior highs before, <laughs> like not even high schools. He got kicked out of three junior highs and expelled. Wow. The, the Brawning brothers were kind of a handful. Dude, my poor mother, like my dad was like, dang it. They're basically being me, you know? And my mom was like, what the heck do I do? I didn't get kicked out of school until high school. So I got kicked out of two high schools, went to my third one handcuffs. Well done. Thank you. And you know, they, he uncuffed me and said, here's your new school. I went to continuation school called Richland Continuation High School. Which, coincidentally, 13 years after attending, I got to go back and speak as a motivational speaker at all three schools I attended the year that, the last year I was using uh, drugs. But I got sober at 17. I quit drinking, quit everything. And that's, you know, I got the, the job the, at Sizzler. The magic of the Sizzler. The magic, of the, look, Sizzler saves lives is what I'm trying to say. And, and, and brings you know, families sober, together, obviously. yeah, brings families together. And at that age now, like for the first time, I'm like, I'm awake, I'm aware. Um, and I felt like there's, I'm trying to find a purpose now as a kid. I didn't really care about having a purpose. I just sort of went along and it makes sense that I didn't have anything else to do. I didn't do sports, didn't do academics. So I kind of fell into drinking and drugs, but by 17, now I don't have that. I quit skateboarding. I quit, you know, being a punk rock kid and everything. So now I got to go, what the heck am I going to do? And I'll tell you this. Um, I love you for this, Tom, you're, you're such a fun interviewer. I don't know why, because, well, I just, I do, I know you. Um, but at 17, I bought my first uh, online, well, it wasn't online, it was tape cassettes, but I bought a business development course from an infomercial. Who, and it was, whose? For, do you remember whose it was? I don't remember the guy's name, but it was for trading commodities. And, <laughs> Which is what yeah. every 17 year old buys. So here I am, uh, I buy this new commodities course, it was 400 bucks and I'm in school buying it. And I went in with my friend, my friend Nick, who lives in Japan now of all things, and we each pitched in 200 bucks. Now how did I get 200 bucks? Well, I worked at Sizzler, so I made a little bit, Um, but in the summertime I worked with my dad's friend, Lou West. He's a scientist, but on the side as a hobby, he also kept bees and he kept so many bees eventually he had some honey and then he had too much honey and then he went to the farmers markets to sell honey and I, so I'm this kid and he was like man I'm going to too many farmers markets this is supposed to be a hobby so I cut my first JV deal um he said hey I'll pay you 30% of whatever we sell and you take my truck take all the honey stuff and all the you know beeswax and everything honey sticks and all the things we sell and you go to the three farmers markets for me saturday sunday and tuesday morning and I went there and I started making some cash you know not a ton but more than most kids had. So I spent some of that bee honey money to go buy my commodities course. And then I'm in school the next year in the fall and I'm bringing the Wall Street Journal every day. I'm paper trading in class, Japanese yen and trying to figure out how this whole thing works. I never ended up doing real commodities training but it was the first time that I invested something because I'm like, I wanna figure out how to get ahead. I wanna figure out how to have more than I had growing up, I suppose.
0: So that's actually fascinating that it just sort of, even though you never ended up doing the commodities trading, it got you into this whole idea of self-development and education. And then, you know, you've obviously put that to work in everything that you've done done ever since. I think that's actually a kind of a fascinating story. So let's fast forward to today. What does your business look like today, Matt? What do you
2: do? Man, so today um, I, I've been, well... Let me give you a 30 second synopsis because from there I went to real estate for about 10 years. Very successful in there early on in my 20s but then I made another mistake and kept going to personal development. I went and saw a guy named Tony Robbins, (laughs) big teeth, big hands, huge head, you know Tony, I love him so much and I saw him basically doing intervention and coaching work and I just thought in my young mid 20s, I'm like, man, I got to do that. My first coaching business, uh, I didn't make a lot of money, I made about $900 in two years but I went after it coaching. I shut down the real estate business and it took me two years to move the needle, so to speak. I finally broke out in Australia. I had my first big speaking gig in front of 400 people and actually made money selling the idea of coaching and doing this neuro programming or NLP training. And I did that for, I mean, the better part of 10 years, almost 15 years now, certifying people in NLP and coaching. And, and then began, of course, working with coaches and working with authors and working with those kind of people. The biggest thing that built my business was speaking and I, you know, different than you, of course, I know you do keynote speaking. So I was always doing platform speaking. I fell into it. I didn't do it on purpose. Someone invited me out and they're like, Hey, you want to speak in front of 400 people? I'm like, sure. How much does it pay? And they're like, nothing. You got to get yourself over there, but we have 400 people. And if you can make an offer for at least $2,000, we'll split it. So I have no idea about this whole industry, but I just thought, I mean, it kind of makes sense. I mean, shoot, And I'm thinking like, well, if half the people buy, half the people did not buy. (laughs) but And I can get a lot of great coaching and training clients. So let's rock and roll. And I went out there and I made $58,000 off of my first speaking.
0: Hey, everyone, this is Tom Singer. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to inform you about a special offer that I have to join a brand new group called My Sales Call. If you work for a small business or if you're a solopreneur, having some people to talk about ideas and best practices and to have a focus and accountability around sales is so important. It's so easy to get caught up in the busy work that we don't do what we need to do to drive the sales in our business. So I have started a weekly call where people can get together and share ideas around sales and then make a commitment to the group of what they're going to accomplish for the next week. It's just like if you work for a big company, your sales manager would have a weekly sales call. This is your sales call. Go to mysalescall.com to find out more and sign up today.
1: Welcome to the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we explore the interesting lives of business leaders, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, and others who have a healthy dose of the entrepreneurial spirit. It is time to explore something cool. Cool. Now, here is your host, Tom Singer. Hey, hey, and welcome to another episode of Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do.
0: Thank you so much for pulling your chair up to the cool kids table. So I created this podcast about five and a half years ago so I could have access to really interesting people who are doing cool things because I know that one thing is always true and that is success leaves clues. So when you get to get around people who are doing things that are interesting, cool, successful, etc., they can't help it. They have to leave an idea, a theory, a nugget or a concept behind and that's why i do this show because it just exposes me to so many different ways of looking at this world of entrepreneurship and on the flip side hopefully some of you also are really enjoying these conversations that we have so today i have with us matt browning Browning. he's brawny not brownie uh matt browning it damn it i'm gonna edit that out let's look at the time you can brown brun me all you want I don't 50 seconds all right fucking whatever <laughs> All right. So so Chad, I screwed that up and I'm really big about not screwing up names. So Chad, we're going to go back here at a minute 10. So I'm really happy to have with us today, Matt Browning. Now, Matt, I gotta tell you, he is a guy who does a lot of things. And so I don't even know where we're gonna start. He was like a child entrepreneur. He was like selling skateboard wheels out of his backpack. He uh, has written several books. He teaches people how to be better public speakers. There's so many layers to Matt that it's crazy. So I was excited when he agreed to take a little bit of time out of his busy schedule and join us here on Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Hey, Matt, welcome to the
2: show. Tom, buddy, my friend, you are so good looking over Zoom, almost as good as in person. I'm glad to be here, man. I'm excited to jump into all the cool things that we do and uh, having a conversation about that, man. All right. So you've been
0: kind of entrepreneurial since you were a kid. And some of the people who are on the show, that's that's their origin story. Other people fell into it at 50 years old. So, so let's go backwards. So what led
2: you to be an entrepreneur? How did you get the bug? You know, for me, it, it was... Quite simply, man, I never fit in. I shared the story at a conference that we were at just a little while ago. I'm five years old. I'm standing behind this big oak tree in kindergarten. I'll never forget this day because it was printed onto my mind. I remember looking at all the kids out there in kindergarten and thinking, I don't fit in. I don't think I can connect with these kids. And I'm not thinking this logically. I just knew that I didn't know how to go up and say hi but they all seem to play just fine, you know? I'd see parents bring their kids to the playground, go play, yay, and they all run off. And me, I just kinda stand there and look and be like, okay, um, hmm, what am I supposed to do? And in that moment, man, I knew that I had a fatal flaw, I knew that I wasn't the same as anyone else, and I knew that I didn't quite fit in, I wasn't and all through school. It stayed with me the entire time. What you needed was to have been my age and at my school
0: because I was always really good about going, hey, come and play with us. I always I've always been kind of like this super connector who who wanted to be inclusive of people. Uh,
2: For the the most part, I wish I had a super connector in my elementary school.
0: There there was sort of that junior high thing where maybe I got a little snotty, you know, a little bully like whatever. But uh, that was my own self uh, self doubts and things. But most of the time, like elementary school and high
2: school, I was the guy saying like, hey, Matt, come sit with us. That, you know, Tom, that would have been very kind. So I didn't have a Tom Singer in my life. And it was weird because I like I never did any sports and people think it's odd, I don't know who does that, but my parents, they weren't like not, they weren't absentee parents. I was in Boy Scouts, I suppose, and I did some things, but I never did any sports. I never did chess club, never did journalism. I wasn't dumb, but I wasn't smart. I wasn't the top of the class, I wasn't the bottom. I just sort of was good enough and I just went by in the shadows. And all my life, nothing really stuck out and I didn't really have a tribe of my own, I suppose. And it wasn't until I was 22 that I started my first real business. They mentioned the skateboard wheels when I was, gosh, probably eight or nine. Um, it wasn't a real business, but goodness sakes, man, some of the kids in the neighborhood, we got a hold of this big, like five gallon bucket, like a Home Depot bucket full of these old, you know, the, the old vision skateboards with the big, thick, fat wheels and the tail and the nose, the bumpers and all that that you'd skate on your knees with. And we got a hold of these, these wheels and some trucks. And I was like, you know what we should do? And they just thought we should have a stockpile. I'm like, no, we should go on the corner. We should sell these to the other kids in the neighborhood. So some kids had a lemonade stand. I had a skateboard wheel stand. Um, I think I made about $2. So it was a big failed experiment. I sold four wheels for a dollar. I had two customers, two of them were my friends, but apparently no one else stopped their car uh, to pick up the the young entrepreneur's skateboard wheel stand. (laughs) So I abandoned that, and they're probably still sitting in my dad's garage somewhere. But at 22, I started my first real business. It was the first time in my life that people started following me in a way. They, they started, it's like they had to invite me in because I was the boss. And, and I don't mean like boss-employee relationship. It was like I brought the vision out for something I wanted to accomplish. And I found that people began gravitating towards vision. Not knowing what I was doing at the time, I was really starting to build kind of my first, I don't know, enterprise slash tribe of people. Nice. Interesting. So so you've
0: been doing this for a long time because you're a lot older than 22, Uh, 23 now. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So so what is it that you've loved about this entrepreneurial journey And in, in the interim? Have you ever had
2: like a real job with a boss and like a time to be at work? Yeah, man. At 17, I worked at Sizzler Steakhouse and I, don't know, I used to
0: love the Sizzler Steakhouse. You'd stand in line and there was pictures of the food. It was like <laughs> <laughs> it, it was so best. it was so exciting. It, like I had gone to Asia when I was, you know, a teenager and all the restaurants had pictures of the food. So you knew what you were getting. But in the United States, it was only the Sizzler.
2: No, Sizzler's the best because like it was full service, but not full service. You go and wait in line, there's a big picture of all the food up in the menu. You pick it, you order it, you grab your tray, you sit down, you get your all-you-can-eat salad bar, but then after that, it's full service. And so and then they bring I, it, they bring it to your
0: table and the steak, it had actual like sear lines in it, it looked like you painted them on. And and my favorite was it always had like a, a large fat wooden toothpick that said like Medium, medium rare, well done, whatever it was, sticking right in the steak so you knew (laughs) that it came like it had like a label that said I've been cooked to the right level.
2: Well, I, I see that as a label of "judge me by my mistakes." Right now, we're not hiding anything because it said medium rare, and you look at it and it's well done, and that happened a lot. <laughs> but man, it, it's Sizzler, I worked there about a year, and wait, wait, I was on are track. The are there still
0: Sizzler steak? My dad and I used to go when I was a teenager. My mom, yes. my mom was dying of cancer. Not to bring this entire interview like down. Mm-hmm. There we go. Yeah, when I was fifteen, she got she got sick. She died when I was eighteen. But she wanted like me to like dinners with like meat and vegetables and uh, not Burger King. And so my dad and I would, the two of us would go to Sizzler a lot. And I'd be like, if you can't go, I don't want to go. And she'd make us go. But really what she did is she kind of got my father and I to become super close. Cause over those last three years of high school, he and I went out to dinner like three days a week often to the sizzler and I gotta tell you when I look back on my relationship with my dad and he only died six years ago he lived to be 99 years old oh my gosh a lot of the bonding that I had because I was a total mama's boy as a kid a lot of the bonding that I had I don't know why this is all coming out to me right now just with the word sizzler but was sitting at the sizzler steakhouse and I loved the big thick steakhouse fries and how
2: about the cheese toast Did you get the cheese toast they always brought free cheese toast I could eat my weight in cheese toast so I'm telling you right now, so what you're saying is that Sizzlers are really responsible for you and your father bonding and connecting. A- absolutely. Are they even still and in business? I need to go yeah, to a Sizzler. They are. In a roundabout way, then, I'm actually responsible for you and your father bonding, I, even, even though I wasn't alive at I was going to say, I don't even think that you, <laughs> when I was 15, you may not have been born. Somewhere in that range. I, I think we're almost that far apart, <laughs> but you know, like I, so I'm, I'm working at Sizzler and Sizzlers are existence. There's one actually around the corner from my folks house in orange, California. Still they're they're all over the place. See, I grew up in, but that's I, it. I grew up in Southern California. My, my Sizzler was on Sizzlers. Baldwin Avenue in Arcadia, California. Dude. Like, look, so I still like Sizzler. Um, but somewhere in there, like I just, I don't know, like, I, I'm 17 and I remember, you know, meeting the manager, a really, really nice man named Craig. And he just, he he worked 60 hours a week managing a sizzler and I know he didn't make too much money and he had dreams and aspirations and, but he was managing the sizzler and I saw that he wanted more and in a way that kind of inspired me, I'm like, okay, this is the stepping stone for me. I'm going to figure something out. I actually, I don't share this almost on any interview, but, um, I fell into hey, a lot yeah, of drugs and drinking.
0: Totally. Okay. I don't usually share my dead parents stories either.
2: So there you go. Well, I guess we're in good company then, Tom. Um, but like by 15, I started doing drugs and, and drinking and kind of going down this, this teenage path. Same when my brother went down. Um, you know, he got kicked out of three junior highs before, <laughs> like not even high schools. He got kicked out of three junior highs and expelled. Wow. The, the Brawning brothers were kind of a handful. Dude, my poor mother, like my dad was like, dang it. They're basically being me, you know, and my mom was like, what the heck do I do? I didn't get kicked out of school until high school. So I got kicked out of two high schools, went to my third one in handcuffs. Well done. Thank you. And, you know, they, he uncuffed me and said, here's your new school. I went to continuation school called Richland Continuation High School. Which coincidentally, thirteen years after attending, I got to go back and speak as a motivational speaker at all three schools I attended the year that the last year I was using uh, drugs. But I got sober at seventeen. I quit drinking, quit everything, and that's you know I got the job the, the, at Sizzler. The magic of the Sizzler. The magic. Of the, look, Sizzler saves lives, is what I'm trying to say, and, and brings you know, families I get sober, together. Obviously, yeah, brings families together, and at that age now. Like for the first time, I'm like, I'm awake, I'm aware, um, and I felt like there's. I'm trying to find a purpose now. As a kid, I didn't really care about having a purpose. I just sort of went along, and it makes sense that I didn't have anything else to do. I didn't do sports, didn't do academics, so I, so I kind of fell into drinking and drugs. But by 17, now I don't have that. I quit skateboarding. I quit you know being a punk rock kid and all, everything, so now I got to go, what the heck am I going to do? And I'll tell you this. Um, I love you for this, Tom. You're, you're such a fun interviewer. I don't know why, because, well, I just, I do, I know you. Um, but at 17, I bought my first uh, online, well, it wasn't online, it was tape cassettes, but I bought a business development course from an infomercial. Who, and it was whose? For, do you remember or, whose it was? I don't remember the guy's name, but it was for trading commodities. and <laughs> Which is what yeah. every 17-year-old buys. So here I am, uh, I buy this new commodities course. It was 400 bucks and I'm in school buying it. And I went in with my friend, my friend Nick, who lives in Japan now of all things. And we each pitched in 200 bucks. Now how did I get 200 bucks? Well, I worked at Sizzler, so I made a little bit. Um, But in the summertime I worked with my dad's friend, Lou West. He's a scientist, but on the side as a hobby, he also kept bees and he kept so many bees Eventually he had some honey and then he had too much honey. And then he went to the farmer's markets to sell honey. And so I'm this kid and he was like, man, I'm going to too many farmer's markets. This is supposed to be a hobby. So I cut my first JV deal. Um, He said, hey, I'll pay you 30% of whatever we sell. And you take my truck, take all the honey stuff and all the, you know, beeswax and everything, honey sticks and all the things we sell. And you go to the three farmer's markets for me, Saturday, Sunday, and Tuesday morning. And I went there and I started making some cash, you know, not a ton, but more than most kids had. So I spent some of that bee honey money to go buy my commodities course. And then I'm in school the next year in the fall and I'm bringing the Wall Street Journal every day. I'm paper trading in class, Japanese yen and trying to figure out how this whole thing works. I never ended up doing real commodities training, but it was the first time that I invested something because I'm like, I want to figure out how to get ahead. I want to figure out how to have more than I had growing up, I suppose.
0: So that's actually fascinating that it just sort of, even though you never ended up doing the commodities trading, it got you into this whole idea of self-development and education. And then, you know, you've obviously put that to work in everything that you've done done ever since. I think that's actually a kind of a fascinating story. So let's fast forward to today. What does your business look like today,
2: Matt? What do you do? Man, so today um, I, I've been well, let me give you a, a 30 second synopsis because from there I went to real estate for about 10 years very successful in there early on in my 20s, but then I made another mistake and kept going to personal development. I went and saw a guy named Tony Robbins, (laughs) big teeth, big hands, huge head, you know Tony, I love him so much. And I saw him basically doing intervention and coaching work and I just thought in my young mid 20s, I'm like, man, I gotta do that. My first coaching business, uh, I didn't make a lot of money, I made about $900 in two years but I went after it coaching. I shut down the real estate business and it took me two years to move the needle, so to speak. I finally broke out in Australia. I had my first big speaking gig in front of 400 people and actually made money selling the idea of coaching and doing this neurolinguistic programming or NLP training. And I did that for, I mean, the better part of 10 years, almost 15 years now, certifying people in NLP and coaching and, and then began, of course, working with coaches and working with authors and working with those kind of people. The biggest thing that built my business was speaking. And I, you know, different than you, of course, I know you do keynote speaking, so I was always doing platform speaking. I fell into it, I didn't do it on purpose. Someone invited me out and they are like, hey, you wanna speak in front of 400 people? I'm like, sure, how much does it pay? And they're like, nothing. You gotta get yourself over there but we have 400 people, and if you can make an offer for at least $2,000, we'll split it. So I have no idea about this whole industry, but I just thought, I mean, it kind of makes sense. I mean, shoot. And I'm thinking like, well, if half the people buy, now half the people did not buy. (laughs) but And I can get a lot of great coaching and training clients. So let's rock and roll, and I went out there and I made $58,000 off of my first speaking gig. And from that moment, I thought, okay, maybe I'll do this again. And for the last decade that's what I've been doing is speaking, training. My heart though is in teaching and training. And so I've been using speaking to grow the business. And long story short, um, at this point over the last few years I realized that speaking is the best way for a coach to grow their business. So I've been working with a lot of speakers and doing speaker training. And then the speaker people who are trained, they're like, I'm ready to go. But the next big question is how do I get on stage? So I've been helping place speakers on stage booked at places like the Air Force Academy, the Olympic Training Center, NASA, because those are big resume, resume builders and that was something I was missing a lot of. So I wanted to get booked on stage, but it's like if I don't have a good resume and a bio, then they were like, oh, you're just every other coach. So I, I wanted to find ways to build a resume, so I'm helping people do that. Um, and then being a local hero, you know, getting booked at on your local stages in front of ideal prospects so you can turn those into clients. And that's, again, that, that's kind of my method for speaking and then having sessions and then being able to pull on and get group or individual coaching clients. It's a great method. It works certainly. Um, I don't know when this will go live exactly, but with the world shifting the way it is, there's some changes going on. Um, I do personally believe that the changes will be temporary. I don't think the whole world's going to go digital and no one's going to shake hands ever again. People <laughs> love conferences and love being in front of people, especially the extroverts. So. You know, the introverts need a reason to get out of the house.
0: There's been a lot of talk about, oh, everything's going to go digital. People aren't going to go back. Yes, they are. And I I talked to a guy the other day who who, he kind of rubbed me the wrong way because he was one of these people who was trying to sell me something. He's like, well, now's the time to invest this giant number. And you're stupid if you don't. And I was like, yeah, whatever, dude. But he told me, he goes, plus your business is going to be changed. People These these conferences aren't going to be able to get sponsors because the sponsors are going to go look at all the money we saved. We're not going to do that. And I said, I actually disagree because, yeah, some people may say, oh, we didn't sponsor last year. Do we need to? And all they need is one cycle where their competitor sponsors and they'll be like, ah, we gave it all to them. I said, let's say Coke and Pepsi both said we're not sponsoring any live events. You wait until Coke has their name all over one giant event and Pepsi will, be, right back Pepsi will be sponsoring everything. So all these people who think it's not going back, humans still need to gather in groups. Like that event you and I were at a couple of weeks ago, it was kind of the last event I think for a long time for everybody, but you know, people there there were a lot of people who were extremely introverted and they loved being part of the community this isn't an introvert extrovert thing and the message Mm -hmm. I've been making is that while we're having to social distance during this coronavirus problem the other thing we have to do is we actively whether we're an introvert or an extrovert we have to look for ways to socially tighten so we can't get together in person what can we do and I've gotten more newsletters in the past several days since we've been on this sort of pseudo quarantine than I ever have in my life and they're all titled COVID-19 or coronavirus I I did a search and it's like it's close to like 500 things have come in in 48 hours with that title and my thing is is that we need less broadcasting and more personal communication because people need that and when the world gets back to normal and it will we're going to see a big push for everybody wanting that
2: human to human piece so I
0: I just had to reiterate what you said it's going to get back to
2: normal yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, this is a temporary thing, and the closest I can I can remember is when I was in the real estate business during 9-11. and you know it's different, but it's that same unexpected crisis that changes the way we so and so do things. And man, I remember everyone in the industry is like, "It's not going to go back." The stock market closed. Can you believe Wall Street closed? What's going to happen? It's you know. And what you find is whether it's expected or unexpected, um, whether it's a virus or a terrorist attack or something else entirely, there are always something in history that's gonna be an external factor that changes something. And sometimes we do get, but usually the changes that last or through innovation. It's not right. through crisis, right? When it's through crisis, we usually get back to normal. That's what we want. There will be some changes, but it's not going to be
0: like, we're never going to gather in a convention center ever again. Yes, we are. No and the other thing is, is I'm, you know, I'm in my 50s. So I'm much, much older than you. Uh, much. I, I've I've seen a lot of these ups and downs in, in the economy. And the one thing I know for sure is anytime there's been a recession, it's always been followed by a bigger boom. I mean, we just, we just came off of record highs in the stock market, record, high, record lows in unemployment. All of these things were, were, you know, there were things happening that were good and there are, the rug's being pulled out. And it may take a few years. I mean, 2008, 2009 took us four or five years to really get on some footing again towards growth. But there's going to be boom times ahead.
2: Yeah. And, and, and I'll tell you, I've been watching that real closely. And with a real estate background, I'm, you know, I'm watching the stock market, watching the real estate market, watching all of that. And I mean, it, I think it's even less than that. You know, when I look at like, I mean, you could say 2005, six, it started shifting, but really it was, you know, early 2007 to maybe the first quarter of 2009. And, you know, people could argue the exact, you know, which index you're looking at and so forth, but I'm looking at maybe a year and a half. You know, And it's always necessary. We've been on an 11 year high and on what's typically a seven to nine year cycle. So yep. I've been, pre- I wouldn't say predicting, that's the wrong word, but I've been predicting this for the last two years. I'm telling people, I'm telling my coaches, I'm telling employees, I'm everyone we like on January one, how about this? So a few months ago on January 1st, I made a massive shift to the business and I downsized a lot of what we were doing. A lot of the, the regular monthly expense and everything just thinking, having no idea what's coming, but knowing that at some point things are going to start tightening. So not out of fear, but out of prudence and intelligence, I want to be ready if revenue is lower, I wanna be ready with lower expenses so that when it comes boom time, we can grow again. And I think it's just silly to think no matter what, you're gonna grow every single year, year after year, there's going to be uh, valleys and there's gonna be mountains. Absolutely. So what advice do you have for people who, who
0: want to do their own thing? Maybe there's the, maybe their job is gonna go away because of what's going on and they're gonna take this as the fine, I'm, I'm done working for other people. What advice do you have for somebody who wants to step
2: out with a machete into the forest? Man, th- there, there's already enough advice about people saying, follow your passion, find your mission, get your purpose and all that stuff. I couldn't disagree more. Uh, I, th- I think, you know, following your purpose in your business can be one of the dumbest things you could do. And uh, and this is, I'm just going to be, I don't know, I guess opposite of what so many personal growth people will say, because that's how I believe. Um I'll give you a quick story. So I've been rock climbing since I was 19 years old and I'm 40 now, Tom. So I'm going to put my age out there. I turn 40 in December. We're just getting all the secrets. He's, he's 40. You get everything.
0: He's 40. He did drugs as a teenager.
2: He worked at Sizzler. We're getting the whole backstory. So honey. Oh yeah, it, it was on. Exactly. <laughs> so when I started rock climbing 21 years ago and I love mountaineering, backpacking, climbing. Trendsetter. Now it's all trendy. All the cool millennials oh rock climbing Gosh. Now. Now, Can I tell pe- you? People with good haircuts are now climbing, but you—there's college classes for climbing now. So when I was climbing back in the day, look, it wasn't the 1950s in Yosemite Valley, you know, with Royal Robbins and some of these guys. Um, it was like it was acceptable, but it definitely wasn't a mainstream thing. And it, a couple years in, at some point, I'm doing real estate. And my friend looks over and goes, "Man, what's your passion?" And I was like, "What? I mean, I don't know. Like, I'm really good at real estate, and I make a lot of money in it." And he's like, "Yeah, but what's your purpose?" I said, "I don't know, but I love rock climbing, and I love camping, and I love outdoors." And they were like, "Well," and he's trying to be a life coach. He goes, "You should, start, you should be a guide, or open an outdoor shop, or something like that." And I looked at him and thought, "You muppet, do you really think I want to spend every weekend?" taking what I used to love and just being outdoors with my friends and now dragging people up a mountain that shouldn't be there in the first place and then having to show up because they paid me money. I'm like, that sounds like a nightmare.
0: We, we all watch City Slickers, so we all know how is.
2: <laughs> Dude, that's it, man. And it's like, you know, if, if you love riding a horse, it doesn't mean you need to be a horse trainer or it doesn't mean you need to have a, a City Slicker ranch. And look, sometimes your passions do tie into a business. I think that's wonderful. But I just want to throw out advice that you might not hear all the time, and that is, you don't have to do what you're passionate about. Instead, I would look for two things. Number one, what is something that comes easy to you but difficult for others? What is easy for you and difficult for others, that's the thing that you should charge the most for. And I'll give credit where it's due, that's from a friend of mine he actually met this weekend, A.G. Morishita, but known A.G. for a lot of years, and he said that about your genius. And I couldn't agree more with that. Um, Don't look for what you wanna do. Don't look for what you love to do. Look for what comes easy for you and is hard for others. And then you go in and go, hey, I'm a magician at this stuff. And it becomes very simple. The second thing to look for is quit looking at yourself. Don't look at what you want to do. Look at what the need is. What do people want? What are they needing? What are they wanting? What does the market want? What do individuals want? And if you can genuinely just go, okay, people really want shoes that are comfortable or whatever. Okay, let me go work on making comfortable shoes. Don't go make a shoe that, I don't know, whatever. Don't go make a product that you think is the coolest thing ever because you like it. Find out what people want and then go give it to them. So those are the two pieces of advice that I would say. And that's excellent
0: advice. Thank you, Tom Singer. So Matt, I've got more questions for you, but first I have to thank the sponsor of this episode. So this episode is brought to you by Podfly Productions. Podfly takes the time and the headache out of starting your own podcast. They set you up with the right equipment, training, and guidance to ensure that you're gonna sound amazing. Podfly does all the heavy lifting and that pesky technical work so that you can focus on creating great content, growing your audience, and interviewing really cool people like Matt Browning, Hey, if you want to start a podcast, and I know, I know that some of you do, jump over to podfly.net slash cool things and check out the offer that they have for the listeners of this show. So, Matt, as we wrap this interview up, it wouldn't be fair to do that without talking about some of your brilliance, and that is around your book. So, your book is called what? Your most The Firebox
2: Principle. That's the, the last book. The
0: Firebox Principle. Principle. And that is something to do with uh, seven tips. What are they?
2: Well, they're the seven drives that fuel every entrepreneur. And the quick story for the book is um, I started looking around at origin stories as I interview people on the Driven Entrepreneur podcast. That's my show. And as wait, I'm interviewing, wait, wait. how people-
0: would people find the Driven Entrepreneur podcast? Well, the
2: easiest way will be to search The Driven Entrepreneur wherever you get your on-demand podcasts. I'm on Spotify, iHeart, Stitcher, iTunes, everywhere. Because I have a, sl- I'm going to go out
0: on a limb here. If you're listening, go on a limb. If you're listening to a show called Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do, your second favorite show could be The Driven Entrepreneur.
2: Definitely well under cool things, but the driven entrepreneur, and, and this is a little bit different of a show because what we do is get into the backstory and the origin story behind cool entrepreneurs, and then there's tips and lessons that come along the way, but it's really about the backstory and how they became who they are. Well, I started noticing that there's these, I don't know, people are motivated for different reasons, and in the personal development space, it's like, oh, we're all motivated to make the world a better place, and number one, that's not true because the deep, real motivations for different entrepreneurs are not always that. And number two, when you look at business owners all around the world and from all different times, the motivations are always different. So I got fascinated. I started research, and I looked at alive and deceased entrepreneurs. And we looked at—I mean, everyone. I'm talking, you know, Andrew Carnegie. I'm talking Tesla. Um, we looked at James Dyson, who started Dyson vacuums, uh, Lamborghini, and all the rest of them. You know, big and small names. And was like, well, what was the story behind why they're doing this? And the pattern showed itself. So I didn't create this as my own concept. It was just that's what the pattern showed was these seven different drives. And the idea is if you can understand your deep, real motivational drive for why you're doing your enterprise, two things might happen. Number one, many entrepreneurs find that over years they steer away from their drive and they don't realize it, but they they started for one reason and now they're running the ship very differently. And the team feels that, the clients feel that, the world feels that. So some people, they get back in line with their original drive. And then two, sometimes they find that uh, the drive wasn't, isn't the right drive in the first place. So, hey, we started this to be a nonprofit, to make a difference in the world, to contribute to people. But now we've made this big impact. So maybe it's time to actually shift and change your flag and say, you know, we're not all about this. Now we're about that. I like it. So where do people find the book? Well, you can go to fireboxbook.com and pick up the book. There's also a free quiz I created called the Firebox Quiz, (laughs) shockingly enough. And in about 30 seconds, you can find out answering seven questions, which of the seven drives are motivating you in your enterprise, your vision, or your business. Awesome. Well, one of the final questions I ask everybody who comes on the show is,
0: Matt, we could talk about you and your business all day long. All day long. All day. In fact, maybe for two, three days. However... I think great entrepreneurs, I think they're observers. So when you look out into the world of entrepreneurship, the entrepreneur's sphere, if you will, who do you say,
2: wow, she or he, they're doing cool things? He or she, they're doing cool things. You know, <laughs> I, I, I've been doing a lot of space, uh, time in the podcast space. And the first guy came to mind was someone we just met at the conference, Jocko Willink. And the reason I think he's doing such a cool thing, he's you know, author, he's an author, he has a podcast. He's doing a lot of things that are very normal. The he, has one thing arms, he
0: has arms the size of my thighs, at least. Yeah, definitely he's the like size of my He's like this
2: ex-military chest, guy. It's like I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to piss him off. I just want to find out what exercise he does for his neck because he he does a lot of weights. I'm sure around the neck. Uh, that's probably from jujitsu. But the reason I think he's doing something cool is that almost every conversation we had with him turned back into I don't know why that works or how how did you plan this? And he said, I didn't plan it. I just do the thing I do. And he's having a very real, very authentic conversation about what he absolutely knows is true and what his absolute expertise is from his time as a Navy SEAL. He shares the conversation and then it's like, people listen. I think we're, we're so many entrepreneurs are far too tied up into, uh, Gary V talks about this a lot. How do I grow my YouTube numbers? How do I grow my Instagram numbers? Whatever. And it's like, Why, quit trying to grow a mailing list. Nobody wants to be on your dang mailing list. But if you have something that people really wanna hear and you focus on good content and not even trying to figure out what they want, just here I am and I'm gonna talk about the thing that I think is important and I'm gonna talk about the thing that I'm good at and if that's a relevant topic, all of a sudden people swarm. So I think the coolest thing entrepreneurs can do is be real and talk about what you actually know. Well, that's
0: interesting. It sort of dovetails with an interview I did about five, four or five episodes ago with Tucker Max, and I asked him, you know, how much of this was, was was luck? Could you have planned sort of an email going viral? Could you have planned this happen? And he said, look, everything that's happened in my life, and I'm paraphrasing, you'd have to go listen to the whole episode. Uh, it's but in the said, archives for free, I'm sure. It's in the archives. You can go back four episodes, and there it is. It's titled Tucker Max. Um, but he said that, you know, something would happen. And he would see that there was an opportunity, he said, but then everyone thinks he was lucky. He said, what people don't realize is I jumped in and I worked my ass off to make it happen. So, yes, there is some like a door opens, but then you got to kick that door all the way open and you got to go full in. And I thought, wow, that was that was a really good answer to the question that I was asking him. So,
2: man, I would take hard work over luck any day of the week. Yeah.
0: Well, and he was saying when they both come together, that's where the fire starts. So. Speaking of fire, fire, fire box, get the book, get
2: the firebox. <laughs> there you go.
0: All right. Well, Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. If people need to
2: know more about Matt Browning, where do they find you? Simplest thing is Matt Browning on all social media. It's B-R-A-U-N-I-N-G, B-R-A-U-N-I-N-G, the German spelling at Matt Browning, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, all the rest of it. And then fireboxbook.com and you take the quiz for free right there. And then look for
0: the Driven Entrepreneur podcast naturally of course all right thank you so much for being on the show and thank you to everybody who tuned in i say it every time if it wasn't for the audience why would we do this there'd be no show but i do believe that people like matt come along and they leave these little nuggets and ideas because success leaves clues we're gonna be back in a couple of days with somebody just as cool as matt although they probably did not work at the sizzler and they'll be younger well maybe older i don't know i don't have an age requirement in this show But uh, anyway, we're going to come back with that interview. We're going to find out what steakhouse they worked in. Now I want to go to Matt's house for dinner and see if he can grill me a steak.
2: I have steaks in the fridge right now, literally. Come on over, man.
0: There you go. And uh, so anyway, tune back in. But, you know, while you're going through this entrepreneurial journey, flex that entrepreneurial muscle. Because I will tell you something right now with what's going on in the world, we need you to do that. Make sure your ladder's against the right wall. And while you're at it, have a great day.